Hi, I'm Tyler Salty, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you would take your Bibles with me and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. This morning we will be in verses 19 through 25 in the book of Galatians. Human reason must surrender itself to the Word of God. The Word of God never surrenders itself to human reason and human intellect. Because human reason is always limited. Who can understand the great mysteries of God? Who can understand a God who spoke into nothing and created everything? Who can understand a God who would send his own son to die on the cross? I fear that too many people think that human reason and human intellect will help them figure out and understand God. We're here today not to figure out God by our own reason and intellect. We're here today for God to reveal himself to us so that we can somehow understand him. If we elevate human reason and think that everything must work together and that reason must be a servant to the word of God, we will never get to the true God. We will only ever have a God that we make in our own image, after our own likeness. And that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the true God. I say this because I want us to yearn to hear from God. So, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Verses 19 through 25 of Galatians chapter 3.
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes we need to get back to the basics to remind ourselves of those truths that are foundational to our lives. To go back and remember the essentials to the Christian life. But what is essential? What would make your list? God as the sovereign and creator God. The deity of Christ the fallenness of sinful humanity, the virgin birth, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Christ, the nature of regeneration, what it means to be made new, the lordship of Jesus Christ, election, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder, as we think about those things that are essential, and that's by no means an exhaustive list, where your understanding of the law would fall. Would it be near the top? Would we even consider it as something important? Or would we just say, you don't really need to know anything about the law. It's not that important. You just need to know that it's there in the Bible, but it really doesn't have anything to do with you because we have the gospel. We emphasize the gospel, and rightly so. We hear it proclaimed week after week. We preach it to ourselves daily. We know that we cannot and must not move on from the gospel. We would even say that it's good to have a gospel primer. 
to know the essentials of the gospel. But would, would we ever find a law primer that would teach us about the necessity, the basics of the law? And that we would think that knowing that would be absolutely essential to life. Too often we separate law and gospel. Too often we create a canyon between them so large that we do not see and cannot imagine that they really go together. What does law, what does a bunch of rules, what does the Mosaic law or the law that we find in the first five books of the Bibles, what does that have to do with the gospel? We must be those as Christians who see that the gospel and law, they naturally fit together and are so used by God for his purposes What place does the law have in your life? Do you know its purpose? Do you appreciate its purpose? Would you thank God for how he has used the law in your life? Paul wants us to know the purpose of the law. And so it's necessary that we understand this because Paul is using this argument of the purpose of the law to fight for the gospel. The Galatians were prone to turn to a different gospel. They were prone to fall for teaching that was distorting the gospel. And so Paul was having to fight for the gospel in the church. Think about that. That he would have to fight for the gospel in the church Let me tell you, dear brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. We still have to fight for the gospel in the church. And Paul here is telling us, in order to fight for the gospel in the church, you have to know the law. You have to know the purpose of the law. You have to know why it's there. And Paul says that the purpose of the law is not to save you. If we use a more theological term, we could say that Paul is saying the law does not justify you. It does not declare you righteous. It does not make you right before God. But what's more, the the law, the law does not sanctify you either. Paul says the law does not justify you. It doesn't save you. And the law can't even sanctify you either. Yet it plays a crucial role in understanding, in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of Jesus Christ. And so if you want to see the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with clear eyes, you must be intimately acquainted with the law. And this acquaintance is not a mere intellectual study. It is what the law does to our hearts and to our affections and to our desires and to our understanding in such a way that God actually uses it to draw us and long for the gospel. Because the law by itself is bad news. Everyone has an interest in the law because the law affects everybody. Mankind has a rampant problem, and that problem is legalism. 
Now we can think of legalism in a few different ways. There could be a legalism that is what we would call a front door legalism. A legalism of rules, of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And if you follow those rules, then you will find or you will win God's favor. That's front door legalism. That's, we see that oftentimes. But there's also something called a backdoor legalism. What is that? It's those people who would say, I am a law unto myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. I am anti-law, anti-rules. We call that antinomianism. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And people who say that, what do they do? They make a law unto themselves. They say, I'm not going to follow your list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to follow my own law. I'm going to follow my own way. And I'm going to get to God on my own terms. That's a backdoor legalism. And mankind is enslaved to that. Either front door or back door, we're enslaved to that. That's our propensity. We want to we wanna find a way to get into God's good graces. We want to find a way into the house on our own, whether it's through the front door or whether it's through the back door. And so we say that the law affects everybody. You can't get out of it. You can't escape it, whether you realize it or not, whether you're cognizant of it or not. The law either has a hold of you right now or the law at one time had a hold upon you. Whether the law was written down in the Bible or whether it was a law that was written on your own hearts. And how can I say this with such certainty? How can I say that this is mankind's... I mean, that's a huge statement, isn't it? How can I say that and mean it. Because of guilt. Oftentimes you think of guilt as a feeling. I just feel so guilty. Well, why do you feel that way? Because you are guilty. Now, our understanding of guilt can be out of whack because of our sin, because of sin in this world, but guilt is not primarily a feeling. Guilt is a position, a standing, where everyone starts before God. That is why the law is so important, because you are guilty. I am guilty. But God has so provided a way that you don't have to remain in your guilt. You don't have to stay guilty. So now you want to know the purpose of the law, don't you? Because we do not want to remain in our guilt. So last week we began looking at the purpose of the law. We said this first. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that helps you. This outline. The law makes you see the increasing problem of sin. The law makes you see the increasing problem of sin. And we said this. The law was not put in place or added, as it says here in God's word, to restrain transgression. That's how we often think about it, right? We think about the law as put there to restrain transgression. Why do I tell my kids what to do? 
I try to restrain them. I don't want them to do it. That's our natural thought. But why did God put the law in place? Was, was transgression restrained? What happened in Israel after the law was put in place? Sin abounded all the more. Sin reigned. Look at the history of Israel. Did it get better after the law? No, sin abounded. There's this increasing problem of sin and transgression. And we saw how transgression is not just breaking the law of God, not just transgressing rules, it's transgressing God. There is a personal nature to this breaking of the law. It's not just merely a set of rules that I've broken. It's actually something that I've done against this God. You have rebelled against him. So the law was given to increase transgression. And what does the law do? It only shows you how much of a depraved sinner you are before God. Think about all those terms that we read about from Romans 5. Ungodly, weak, enemies. The law, the law can't do what we desperately want and what we desperately need. The law can't take away or remove our transgressions. Who can do that? The one of whom it is said, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is the seed, the offspring, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the one who can take away our transgressions because our transgressions were placed upon him. Think about that. Our transgressions, how many are our transgressions? Too many to count. There's no book big enough to hold just my transgressions. Yet all of our transgressions were placed upon him who could take away our transgressions and make intercession before God and say, those people who you would count guilty, God, they are now what? Not guilty. Why? Because I've taken their transgressions upon myself. Because I've died. Because I've shed my blood. They no longer are counted guilty before you. Now they are innocent. Do you long to hear that? That you are innocent before God. And that's not make-believe. That's the reality for those who are in Jesus Christ. The second thing that we looked at last week, the law makes you run to Christ for life. The law makes you run to Christ for life. There's a faulty thinking out there. Again, we said that legalism is man's problem. And part of that faulty thinking, that false way of thinking, is that the law can give you life. That if you live by the law and keep the law, it will actually produce life in you. How many people fall into this? That if I can just live the way that I want to live, that if, if I can just create my own rules, then I'll really be living. Then life will really be good. Then I will really be free. They think the law will give them life. But the law doesn't give life. If the law gave life, then it would be competing with the gospel. 
The law doesn't give life. What does the law do? The law condemns. And the law kills. Why would you want the law? The law can't do for you what you need done for yourself. The law can't bring you to life or give you life. Who gives life? What does it say in John 10, 10? I came that they might have life and have life abundantly. That's Jesus Christ. He came that we might have life. And it was God's will to imprison everything under sin. Why? So that we would see that salvation in no way depends upon us. That we do not have the ability, that we do not have the strength, that we have nothing in of ourselves to save ourselves. Rather, it is meant to make us fly to Jesus Christ. The law is meant to be that hammer that breaks your heart. It is meant to humiliate you and humble you and convict you of your sin before God. Repentance contrition, conviction of sin. These are all marks of the true Christian, one who has met Moses face to face and has been crushed by the law. And it's meant to show you that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and the law highlights God's grace. Isn't it God's grace that he would devise the law so as to drive you to Jesus Christ? Isn't it God's grace that he would use the law as a mirror so that you could see yourself clearly, so that you could see who you really are, and that he would use it to bring you to an end of yourself where with, with, with nowhere else to turn, with no one else to go to, with nothing left to cling to other than Jesus Christ? Isn't that God's grace? So doesn't the law highlight God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love? That was all last week. Number three this morning. The law makes you desire the new covenant in Christ. The law makes you desire the new covenant in Christ. The law makes you desire the new covenant in Christ. We know something from experience of anticipation. Have you ever anticipated something before? Had an eager expectation? And we know as as that thing that we're looking forward to gets closer and closer, our anticipation begins to build. That sense of excitement begins to build. Like a child waiting for Christmas morning. Like parents waiting for the birth of a child. Like the anticipation of a wedding day. From the Old Testament, the anticipation has been building for the arrival of a new day. A day unlike what they were experiencing. A day when coercion and compelling of the law would cease. And a day of willingness 
a day of voluntarily offering yourself to God would take place because of what he had done. Think about those two spheres for a moment. Who would want to live in the realm of being coerced and compelled by the law? I mean, my kids recoil at that, right? If you have no kids, you can't make me do that. And how amazing that then the words from Romans 12, 1 through 2, become so beautiful to our ears. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, by, uh, which is your spiritual worship. Here is this voluntary giving of yourself. I will give myself as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because God's making me do it. No, because I want to do it. I, think about this, I would want to offer myself as a living, I would want to die to myself. I would want to do that, willingly, voluntarily. I would want to do that because of what God has done for me through his son, Jesus Christ. And think about it also, Romans 5, that he's also poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God. When you understand what God has done for us, you willingly give yourself. So, let's look at a few from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 Psalm 110, verse 3, says this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Did you hear that? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Willingly, wantingly, not coerced, not forced to. They want to do it. They give themselves Isaiah, how about this one? Isaiah 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And what? And all the nations shall flow to it. Why do the nations flow to this mountain of God? Why do the nations flow to the temple of God? Why do the nations flow to God himself? Because they have to? Because someone is driving them to do it? No, because they want to do it. Because they want to know God. Because they want to fellowship with God. Because they want to commune with God. Because they want to be with God. How about another one? One more. Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's a day, Jeremiah is saying, there's a day coming. It's not like the old covenant. It's not like the law that they knew where when you come into the Old Covenant, you're circumcised, but you still have to say to your brother, 
You still have to say to the one who's circumcised, know the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord. Jeremiah is saying there's coming a day when all who are in the covenant community, all who are in, as we said here, the new covenant community, what? They know the Lord. This verse is why, one of the reasons why I don't baptize babies. Because when you come into the covenant community, when you come into the new covenant community, when you come into the church, we don't have to say to that one, know the Lord, know the Lord, put your faith in the Lord. No, what does it say? When they're in the covenant community, what? They know the Lord. They know him. And so as we think about baptism, that, that shows this public profession of faith, right? That those who then come in, they are the ones who know the Lord. That's why they stand here in this water, and what do they do? They give their testimony. They give the fact that they do know the Lord. <laughs> and then we rejoice with them and say, yes, because you know the Lord, we are in agreement with you as you pledge your allegiance to him. But the anticipation is growing, is building in the Old Testament. A new day was going to dawn, a day like they had never known before. A great and glorious day. And God is using the law to build this anticipation. You hear it here in our verses 23 through 25. Follow along as I skip here through these verses for a second. Look at what it says. The very beginning. Now before faith came... And then until the coming faith would be revealed. And then finally, but now that faith has come. You hear the, the anticipation build through these. Before faith, until faith would be revealed. Now that faith has come. Why does Paul put it like this? Faith. He says before faith came. How are we to understand this? Was there no faith in the Old Testament? Was faith out of commission until this new day dawned? No, we know that's not the case because we know of Abraham. He believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith. And it was such a faith that saved him. And we even read about his faith in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's clear, Abraham had great faith. Think about that. God would call you to go out, leave everybody you know. Go somewhere where you've never been there before. You don't know what's going to be there when you get there. Live in a foreign land. We look at Abraham's faith. That he would do that. He would obey God at that moment. How weak and frail is our faith sometimes in comparison to him. But what Paul is referring to here is not the act of believing or the act of faith itself, but it's the revelation of faith. This faith, 
this faith is the revelation of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham did not have the whole revelation yet. He looked ahead and believed, but the revelation of Jesus Christ had not yet come. We can think about it this way. The object of that faith was not yet in its clearest form. That only happened when Christ came. Lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. So, before this faith came, the law was there to stoke the desire of the heart for the new covenant that was to come. It was to make us yearn for the dawning of the new day, where the promised offspring would come to accomplish salvation and to fulfill all the promises of God. So, how does the law stoke our hearts and our desire for the new covenant and the life that would be found in Christ? And how does that desire grow? Two things you see here in your outline. Number, or letter A, yes. Our desire grows because the law is a prison. Our desire grows because the law is a prison. This is the first picture of the law. Now before faith came, what? We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I believe this word under, so it says there, you were held captive under the law, helps draw a parallel to being under sin. So that if you are under the law, it's synonymous with being under sin. Controlled by sin, dominated by sin. Or as it says so vividly here, held captive under the law and imprisoned. You are chained to the law and there is no way of breaking out of this prison on your own accord. It says imprisoned or locked up. Remember we sing about that in a song, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. What? My chains fell off. My heart was free. That is what the law does. It shows us that we are imprisoned. Listen to this from Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Why does this idea of being in prison stoke the desire of our heart for the new covenant, stoke our desire for Jesus Christ? Because who would wantingly, knowingly stay in prison? If there was a way out of prison, you would take it. You would go out. The problem is that perhaps we have not faced the reality of what it is to be in prison. No less have we a frame of reference for what it would be like to be in a Roman prison. No idea of the tight, cramped quarters of a cell that's dug into the ground. No sense of the darkness that would close in all around you and envelop you. No sense of the filth that you would live in day in and day out. No sense of the idea of isolation. Isolation. 
alone with meager rations, no control, no freedom. You were not your own, and you knew it. The prison itself was torturous. No one would remain there voluntarily. The problem with many today is that they don't even know that they are in prison. They are in denial and they are held captive to sin under its domain. Martin Luther says this, too many convince themselves that they are not in prison and so remain there forever. How disastrous that some have painted the walls. They've put up curtains over a window that's not there. They have tried to clean themselves up out of the filth. They have cozied themselves up in their little cell, all the while oblivious to the fact that they are in prison. I pray that this is not you today. That you are not so deluded as to think that you are at home when you're really in prison. That all you know is the trouble and anguish of mind that comes with a spiritual prison so locked up that you can't enjoy the quietness of heart and the peace of conscience that comes with knowing Christ. May the Lord open your eyes to your prison and may you hear this good news. The prison is not meant to destroy you. It's meant to refresh you and bring you out of prison. The prison that is the law is meant to take away all help and all comfort and anticipate the day when that prison would then be destroyed, when it would be no more. The prison was not meant to be permanent. Rather, it anticipated the coming faith that would be revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that what? So that you would be free. That you would then sing, I'm free from my sin. I'm free from fear of death. I'm free from eternal separation from God. I'm free. Like Jesus says in John chapter 8, Verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And what? And the truth will set you free. That's why we need to know the truth, because it's the truth of the gospel, it's the truth of Christ and his words that actually set us free so that we're no longer in a prison so that we wake up from our stupor, so that we see Jesus Christ, and so that we follow him and say, there's no way I can make it to God. There's no way I can make it out of this prison without Jesus Christ. So, the prison grows our desire for what we have in Jesus Christ. And letter B, our desire grows because the law is a babysitter. Our desire grows because the law is a babysitter. Here, the law, as Paul describes it, as we read about, is a guardian. 
or as I've described it, a babysitter. Some people would say this is teacher or schoolmaster, but that's not the meaning of the word. This word is a picture of a slave who has the responsibility of, of caring for a child. And most likely it's caring for this child and they're go, going and coming from school. Sometimes people would say this guardian would have been a strict disciplinarian for the child, but there's a main point here that the nature of this guardian or the nature of this babysitter is that it's temporal. It's only for a time. Why do you need a babysitter? Because you are immature. You cannot be left alone by yourself. But what happens when you reach the age of maturity? You no longer are in need of a babysitter. That's what happens with the coming of Christ. This is actually what the law was anticipating. The law had in its view that it would not be a babysitter forever. There was a day of salvation that was coming, future salvation, when its services would no longer be needed. And that is precisely what happened in the coming of Christ. Listen to what one commentator, one man, Ferguson, says about this. The law was God's great design to direct souls to Christ and clothe, clothe them with his righteousness. Why would you want to go back to a babysitter? That would be to, to, to deny what you have in Jesus Christ. When, when are the times when you need a babysitter? Two times that I could think of. When you are young, you need a babysitter. But also, when you are old, you go back to needing a babysitter again. And it's more difficult when you are old to admit that you need a babysitter, that you need to go back to that stage of life. But this is the good news of the law and then the gospel. Because once the babysitter of the law is done, it's done. You never have to worry about going back to that. You never have to desire that again. You never have to long for that again. Why? Because now you have come to the point of maturity. Now you've come to the age of Jesus Christ. Now you have come to the new covenant that we have in him. You never have to go to that, back to that babysitter ever again. It was temporary. It was not designed to be around forever. You've grown up into Christ, into faith in Christ, so that now you might be declared righteous by God. And it's insanity to want to go back to babysitter. The law as a prison and as a babysitter is not perpetual. Its end is Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Think about this question. Why did God allow man to fall and become so miserably lost? Have you ever asked that yourself that question? Why did God allow man to fall and become so miserably lost? Too many have racked their brains trying to figure out that question, wrestled with that question, don't understand that question. But here is the answer. The answer is that God desired us to lean on his grace alone. God so desired us to lean on his grace alone. Is that what you lean on? You lean on his grace and his grace alone. 
Why prison? Why a babysitter? Because God wants to show you his grace. He wants to show you the fullness of his grace, and he has done that in sending his son, Jesus Christ. John 1, 16 through 17, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want to know this grace, and I want to know this truth, and it only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And now that Christ has come, now that this new covenant era has been ushered in, it's dominated by faith. Our desire should not be for something that imprisons us. Our desire should not be for something that was only ever temporary. We desire this new era, this new redemptive history, this new covenant, the place now where we are called new creations in Christ Jesus. Where the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And we are found alive in Jesus Christ forevermore. Let me close with these verses from Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your, bo- in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And here, listen to this. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but what? Under grace. Are you dominated by sin today? Are you enslaved to sin? Controlled by it? There is a way out, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's through putting your faith and trust in Him. It's in knowing Him that you can know God's favor, you can know God's salvation, and you can be under God's amazing grace. That He can draw you out of that prison. That He can awaken you and open your eyes and give you a new heart so that now you can know life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. All that the law promises, all that your own rules promise, they will never fulfill you. They will never give you what you need. Only Jesus Christ and only the grace that comes through Him will you find that kind of life. Are you under grace? Have you been called from Moses to Jesus? Are you now dominated by his grace, controlled by his grace, and directed by his grace as you live your lives? Dear brother and sister, what a good reminder for us as those who are under grace. Rejoice in that this morning. I pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that comes to us, reminds us of your faithfulness, shows us your glory. And we're thankful for the grace and the truth that we know through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we never lose sight of that. But may that grace and truth dominate us. May it control us. May it stoke the desire of our hearts to live for you with all that we are, with great willingness, 
offering ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Father, if there's someone here today who does not know you, who is in that prison, I pray you would call them out today. Show them your love. Show them the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Show them how they can now be found innocent in your sight and have their guilt removed away. That they can know as far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken our sins from us. And save them, we pray, save them. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.